How many of you like December 25th? How many of you like December 25th? A lot of you, right? And why do you like it? Well, one of the reasons is because you get a lot of good presents, right? It's Christmas Day. That's the day that, you know, there's a tree in your, in the middle of your living room. There's all kinds of gifts that are stacked up underneath of it. And I mean, it's fantastic. I can tell you that I always started looking forward to December 25th around June 17th, right in there. That's when I began to look forward to Christmas. But the problem with Christmas is when I was a kid, It didn't take me long to realize that of all of those gifts underneath the tree, not all of those were mine. Like totally bummed by that because I had, you know, brothers and sisters. And so I only got just a small fraction of all the gifts that were under the tree. But I love to get gifts. And that's why June 16th was far more special to me than December 25th. Do you know why? Do you know what happens on June 16th? Al knows what happens. That's my birthday. Al and I share a birthday, and it's June 16th. And Al, what's cool about June 16th is that all of the presents on June 16th are mine, right? I don't have to share those with my brothers or sisters or anybody else. I love getting those presents. That's my birthday, and all of those presents are for me that day. Because, I mean, after all, who wouldn't rather receive than give, right? Wouldn't you rather get a gift than give one? You guys know that's a setup, don't you? You're getting pretty good at sniffing those out. Let me show you a video really quick. Take a look at this. This year for Christmas, what are you hoping to get? A computer. Big, giant Barbie house. A trophy case. Xbox 360. Minecraft Legos. What do you think your mom or dad want for Christmas? My mom would probably want a ring. She's never really had a ring. Jewelry. She loves jewelry. A new TV. Like watches. So, you actually did buy an Xbox 360. What in the world? What is this? Okay, you you really got this for me? A new laptop. Wow. It's a necklace. So, we also bought a necklace because you said you also wanted to get a necklace for your mom or your auntie. The catch is that you can either get a gift for yourself or you can pick a gift for your mom and dad. I need you to pick one. Now, now before you answer, oh, I bet that's hard. Is that a really hard question? Mm-hmm. What gift do you pick? I choose this. I gotta go with the ring. What gift do you pick? That one. That one. I'll choose this for my mom. I'll choose this one. It's a really tough question. I'll give him this. You already know? Tell me why. Because Legos don't matter. Lego, your family matters. Not Legos, not toys, your family. So it's either family or Legos, and I choose family. I get gifts every year from my family, and my mom don't get anything. I get a laptop. My mama loves something. She helps me when I'm sick. She helps me with my homework. She gave me a house to live in. They look out for me and do stuff for me, so I need to get back to them. Now I have the opportunity to give them something. Because you actually picked the gift for your family, you're actually going to go home with both. Tell me how you're feeling. I'm feeling really happy and thankful. Just happy. Thankful. For your family? For what? My family, everything. He did make his decision, actually. And oh he goodness. picked the Pandora Charms. Oh, that is 
That from Boys and Girls Club of America. Those are pretty good gifts, weren't they? And those were some pretty good gifts. I mean, what do you think was better, the laptop or the necklace? What do you think was better, the remote control monster truck or the ring? What about this? The Xbox 360 for this little boy or a dress? Which of those were better gifts? I think the one that the parents would tell you is that the necklace, the ring, and the dress were better gifts, wouldn't they? Why? Because even though those kids didn't spend a penny, they came at a really high price. They came at a very, very high price. Those kids sacrificed the things that they wanted and they were right there in front of them so that they could give the very best they possibly could to the people they loved. They gave the best gift to the ones they loved. They they gave the very best they possibly could, didn't they? Kids, you may not know it, but your parents do the same things for you. They do it all the time. I mean, every gift that you receive from them, it comes at a price. They make a sacrifice to give you gifts. Parents, when your kids come and they give you a drawing, they give you what little they have, I want you to know that it comes at a very high price. They are sacrificing so that they can give you something that you would truly appreciate. And I think generally as humanity, we know how to give good gifts to one another, don't we? We like blessing other people. We like seeing other people happy. But Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father give good gifts? If you who are evil are good at giving gifts, how much better do you think your Father in heaven is at giving gifts? You see, he's saying that God is infinitely less evil than man. Even though you who are evil know how to give good gifts, God, who is infinitely less evil than you are, I think the message that Jesus is trying to give to us is that God knows how to give infinitely better gifts than you do. Do you think that's the message he's trying to get across here? Kids, I want you to know that God gives better gifts than we do. God knows how to give things that really matter. Last week in the book of James, we talked about our epithumia. We talked about our passions, we said, our desires, and that they control us and that they drive us and they thrust us forward. And we talked about the fact that it's those desires that lead us into traps and they lead us into snares. And we said that we really need to come to terms with the truth that no one else is driving us into sin. No one else is driving us into temptation, friends. The responsibility for my sin, the responsibility for my temptation rests solely, rests squarely upon me. It's completely within myself. And I want you to know that whether you like to admit it or not, the exact same is true of you. It's not someone else's fault. It's not because your husband or your wife isn't wonderful as you thought they should be. It's not because your kids aren't perfect. It's not because the devil made you do it. The truth of the matter is, God did not make you do it. The reason that you are driven to sin, the reason that you are driven to temptation, is because of your own evil desire, and you're letting it go unchecked. It's because you're lured, and you're enticed by your own desire, and by your own passion. It's your own epithumia. It's not the behavior of someone else in your life that causes you to sin. 
It's because you're not exercising control over your passions. It's because you're not stopping yourself in your own desire. And in our first verse for today, James says in chapter 1 and verse 16, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Do not be deceived. Don't blame God. Don't blame other people. Begin to understand that your own desires are the problem. Don't just walk through your life shrugging your shoulders and saying, Well, it's not really my fault. I couldn't have done anything about it. This is just the way God made me, blah, blah, blah. It's not God's fault. It's your fault. You need to understand that, and you have to come to terms with that. You have to realize That it's your own unchecked desire that is working against you. And it's that that you must deal with. You have to deal with your own lust. You have to deal with your own desire. You can't allow yourself, friends, to be dragged into every trap that your lust tries to push you into. You can't allow your emotion to drive your action. Did you hear that? You cannot allow your emotion to drive your action. You have to know where the problem is, and you have to deal with it. And the problem is that you and your own lust are unchecked. You understand? Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't blame other people and deceive yourself. You have to address it. And when you start to feel the push of desire, when you start to feel the push of your lust trying to drive you forward and pushing you in the back, then you need to dig in your heels and you need to stop it before it starts. You have to go back to the four steps that I gave you last week to deal with your desire. Do you remember what those were? I said, don't deflect, don't blame other people. You have to own responsibility for yourself, don't you? That was step number one. Number two, I said, you have to confess and you have to repent. Step three, get into the Word of God and stay in the Word of God. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Step four, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we talked about. Listen, friends, you can't blame others for your sin. You can't blame others for your poor decisions. You can't blame others for your actions. You can't blame God. You can't blame anyone but yourselves. And I really want to drive home the point that you cannot blame God. Did you know that? I want to show you something. And this is really, really important. You can't blame God for your sin. And I'm going to show you why you can't blame God for your sin. Take a look at uh, verse 17. It says this. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we're just going to stop right there. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Kids, you cannot blame God for sin. Did you hear that, kids? You cannot blame God for your sin. You cannot blame God for your temptation because the only things that come down from Him are what? Good and perfect. Do you see that? The only thing that comes down from him is good and perfect. You see, in your human nature, there is sin. In your human nature, there is defilement, but not in God's. God's nature is pure. It is holy, and it only produces what is good. It only produces what is perfect. Our human nature takes those good things, takes those complete things that God gives and in our human nature, we pervert them, don't we? We twist them and we pervert them. But I want you to know that God only gives good gifts and he doesn't give things that are not good. Do you see that? So you can't say then that this bad action that you have has been given to you by God. We don't want to pursue the desires and the lusts of our flesh and blame God for that. Do you understand? If you know, friends, that God only gives good things, think about this. If God only gives good things, 
Why in the world would we want to pursue the desires and the lusts of our flesh? Why in the world would we allow ourselves to be dragged away by the bait and the smell of evil and become entrapped when God has so much good stuff in store for you? Knowing that God has all good and perfect gifts, why would you allow yourself to be enticed and dragged away by sin and temptation? Why would you do that? Everything. Everything that God has for you. There is no good thing that you need that God does not have the capacity to just pour out on you and lavish on you. Do you understand? So why in the world would we be lured into a trap of death when we know that all good things come from God and He's willing to pour those out on us. Why would we do that? And I think that we need to think of it as not only everything that is good, but everything that is complete, everything that is fulfilling. And the gifts that seem so perfect that those little kids gave, those were perfect gifts, weren't they? Because they were so costly to those kids. But I want you to understand, as good as those gifts were, they only find their fulfillment, and they only find their completion, they only find their perfection for a very short time. Do you know what I mean by that? You see, as wonderful as those gifts were, they're just earthly gifts. They're just earthly things. They're things that are soon not going to be useful. I mean, how many gifts do you have that were wonderful the moment you got them, but you no longer use them? Are any of you out there who do that? You've got some things that have made their way under your bed or into your closet or into your garage or wherever it is. But I want you to understand that the gifts that come from God, they're not temporal. They're not earthly in nature. And as God picks out a gift for you, He does it with eyes that see far beyond your momentary and earthly circumstances. He does it looking far beyond your earthly benefit to your benefit in eternity. Do you understand that? He absolutely blesses us in our time on earth. There's, there's no doubt about it. He does do that. But how much more important is your time in eternity than your time here? Have you considered that? How much more important is eternity to you than your temporal time here? See, temporary earthly gifts, they come and they go. They may be absolutely perfect, but technology changes, styles and fashions change, fads change, my passions and my interests change. But I want you to know that's not true of God. Take a look at verse 17 again. This is what it says. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from where? From the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In Genesis chapter 1, we read the story of the creation of the universe. And it's there that God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Do you remember that? He said, let them be for signs and for seasons and for, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And then if you were to jump down into verse 16 of chapter 1, it'll tell us that God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule by day and the lesser by night. You know what those are, right? And then He made the stars. And it's because of this creation account that one of the many ancient Jewish names that they used to refer to God was called the Father of Lights. And that's why you see that here in this verse. Think about that for a minute. Every day, as the earth is spinning and revolving on its axis, and as it continues its orbit around the sun, following its path, the shadow that the sun casts moves, doesn't it? Have you thought about that? Watch the tree in the backyard. Look at how the shadow is in a different place in the morning than it is in the evening. It's because things change. It's because there's variation. 
But James says there's no variation with God. He doesn't change. There's no variation due to the change of the location of the earth relative to the sun with God. God is unchanging. James says that the God who created the heavenly lights never changes. He's always the same. The shadow that He casts never moves. It never varies. He never changes. God even says of Himself in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. I'm the same. The heavenly bodies and the lights change. These things all change and they move to different places in the universe in their rotation. But God is never changing, kids. God does not change. He remains the same. And because he is never changing, listen closely, the gifts that he gives are always consistently good. They are consistently complete and they are consistently productive, friends, to your eternal benefit. Do you get that? Because God never changes. Temporary things don't impact him. And so the gifts that he give you are that he gives you are consistently productive to your eternal benefit. I want you to just pause for a minute, and I want you to consider how huge that statement really is. Think about that. Every good gift, every complete endowment comes down from the immutable, unchanging, eternal God and is consistently productive to your eternal benefit. Isn't that amazing? Knowing that, why would people who are in God's family, listen closely, why would people who are in God's family People who are in a constant state of receiving the most gracious and complete eternal blessing from God ever be attracted to the evil and the destructive bait of their own desires and passions. Why would you ever fall to that? Why would they pursue their own temporary passions which are here today and gone tomorrow? Why would they do that when to the extent that God gives perfect gifts, they can be blessed eternally? And I want you to know that of all the gifts of all the perfect and complete, eternally enriching endowments that God has for you, do you know which one of those is the greatest of all? What is the most perfect gift that God has ever given to you? Have you considered that? If I could remind you briefly this morning of the time we spent in the book of Ephesians, I'd call your attention to chapter 2 for a moment. And some of you may actually remember this discussion in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to read along with me here. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see the problem, friends, with humanity? The problem that this world faces is that it is dead in sin. The problem with this world is that it is dead in sin. It lives in and is controlled by the passions and the desires of its own earthly body. It's controlled by the passions and the desires of its mind. Man has no choice. Sinful man has no choice but to walk from one evil desire, from one evil passion to another. Do you see that? You look all around you, you'll see it. Man goes from one sinful desire, from one sinful passion to another. He goes from one broken relationship into another broken relationship. He chases one sinful thing into another sinful thing. Do you see? Man, kids, is controlled by his own desire. Man is controlled by his desire. He's powerless to avoid the push of his sinful desire. He's powerless to avoid the push of his passion. 
And that's the problem with man. And I want you to know that that used to be your problem as well, didn't it? That used to be your problem. But Paul says that you were dead in your sins. You were just doing like the rest of the world, just walking through the system of this broken cosmos, of this broken order, following your every desire and your every passion, whatever you wanted, you gave yourself. Whatever drew you, you went after. But I want you to know that's not the way it is for you any longer. It used to be that way. But because God is rich in His mercy, because He gives perfect gifts, look at verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. God purposed in His own will. God purposed in His own mind to bring you out from the dead. Do you see that? He purposed in His own mind to snatch you out of that and to give you new life. He chose to resurrect you. He chose to give new life to you. He chose to give you a new birth. Even while you were still dead in your sin, while you were still a slave to your own desires and your own passions, because He loved you so much, He decided that He wanted you and He transferred all through time and eternity to snatch you out of there and to save you from that because of His love for you. Kids, while you were still an enemy of God, He sent Christ to die for you. He searched you out. He looked for you. He found you. And He called you out. While you were still dead. Think about that. You were still dead in your sins. And He gave you new life through Christ. He gave you new life through Christ so that you could walk in the newness of life. Friends, when you were sinners, He washed you and He cleansed you. When you were still His enemies, He saved you and He washed you. He put the Holy Spirit in you so that you had new life and He gave you a completely new nature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. James says that He brought you forth and that's the same word that they would use to talk about childbirth. He gave birth to you. Not only is your sin and your temptation not His fault, He's the only reason that you now have the ability to say no. So when you're driven into the trap of sin... And you're driven into the snare of temptation. It's not God's fault. It's not anyone else's fault. It's because you are now actively working, listen closely, to contradict the new nature that God has given you in His perfect gift giving. Do you see that? So for you now to step into sin and to cave into temptation is because you are deliberately choosing to contradict and to work against the new nature that God has put inside of you. I want you to know how He brings you forth. Do you know how He does that? Take a look again at verse 18. How does He give you new life and bring you from the deadness of sin? He does it with the Word of truth. Do you see that there? Do you know what the Word of truth is, friends? It's the Word of God. It's Scripture. Kids, you are born again and given life through the power of the Word of God. You're given life through the power of the Word of God. Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, and I love this verse, He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's what? It's the power of God unto salvation. Friends, listen to me. The gospel message has the power to save you. The gospel message has the power to save you. The gospel message has the power of God unto salvation. It has the power to raise you up from death in your trespasses and to move you into a place of blessing and into a place of life. The message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, has the ability to raise you from death into life. Do you understand? 
And specifically here, he's speaking of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. James calls it the word of truth. And in other places in the Bible, you'll see it referred to as things like the word of Christ. Romans tells us in Romans ten seventeen. I love this one. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? Through the word of Christ. You remember that we spoke about this several months ago, that faith comes from hearing the word or the rhema of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in Romans that people come to saving faith. People are brought to the place of resurrection from death unto life and from death under the control of sinful desires and passions over their lives. Not from speaking, from other people speaking a whole bunch of biblical generalities and platitudes and feel-good motivational speak into the air. That's not what does it. But it's from hearing a specifically and concisely stated message about Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that has power to bring salvation to you. Saving faith and regeneration occur when people hear the gospel message that speaks of sin and it speaks of eternal death and it speaks of the fact that man can be saved from eternal death through their faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's where faith comes from. That's where your salvation comes from. It doesn't come from vagary. It doesn't come from generality. It doesn't come from just feel-good speech. It comes from a concisely spoken message about the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's a rhema of Christ. And then Paul says, how are people to believe in Jesus if they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone telling them, without someone teaching? Saving faith and spiritual resurrection, friends, come from people hearing the message of Jesus Christ. But it can't save them if they don't hear it. And I want you to know that that's why we teach the Bible the way that we teach it here. That's why we preach the way that we preach. Churches and preachers who rely on emotional appeals and theatrics to draw from their audience some sort of response such as a a raised hand or a signed card, or a walk down the aisle, they have done absolutely nothing for your souls. You may have felt good for a few moments, but nothing of eternal value has happened in your life. Salvation does not come from a sense of emotionally induced euphoria. Do you get that? Salvation does not come because you felt good at some moment in a church service. Salvation does not come from this euphoric feeling. Salvation comes from a desperately broken and contrite heart filled with sorrow over sin as the Word of God has cut him to his heart as it did in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Listen, a message that says God loves you just the way you are is not consistent with the instruction of Scripture. It may make you feel good, may make you feel good about yourself, but I want you to know that it's not true. Scripture teaches that as long as you are content to remain dead in your sin, as long as you are content to be controlled by your every desire and passion, you are an enemy of God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5. But I want you to know that there's good news. There's good news here. And that is that the greatest gift that through the word of God, he will wash you, he will cleanse you, he will give you new life, he will reconcile you to himself, he will make you a beloved son or daughter, he will clothe you with kingly clothes, he will provide for you in your eternity, he will give you a new nature, he will welcome you to an eternal home with him, but not until you have repented and turned away from sin. Do you get that? Friends, it is so important that we teach the gospel message of Jesus Christ in its entirety. It's really important that we don't jump from one feel-good topic to another. Kids, we have to deal with the reality of sin. 
We have to deal with the reality of sin and its eternal implications. Friends, I don't want you to feel as though I'm angry or as that I have an axe to grind or something like that. I just want to see the real church of Christ filled with people as much as you do. I want to see that. But not at the expense of teaching a watered-down message. Not at the expense of the spiritual depth of the people sitting in the seats. That's not real salvation. Friends, we have to take a stand for the proper preaching. We have to take a stand for the proper teaching of the Word of God. We have to take a stand for the Word of Christ, and we do that knowing that it is not going to be popular. It's an offensive message. It offends. And the Bible teaches that there are few who can actually receive it and to be saved. That's what Jesus was saying, wasn't it, in Matthew chapter 7? He said, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is teaching here that the way to salvation is not appealing. The masses don't like to hear the message because it's a message of self-denial. It's a message of sacrifice. It's a message of confession. It's a message of repentance. It's not attractive. It's offensive. But those few who do embrace it, the Word tells us are a kind of a first fruits. Do you see that there? There are first fruits. Do you know what first fruits are? Have you ever thought of that? We don't have time to dig in deeply, but I want to help you understand it. You'll see it a lot in the Old Testament. You see, as a, as a farmer, when you would plant a crop, God would say to them in the Old Testament that I want you to bring your first fruits. Have you heard that before? I want you to bring your first fruits. The first fruits is the first indicator of what the year's harvest would bring, you see? It was the first look at what the year's harvest was going to bring. It was the most valuable part of the farmer's harvest because the farmer does not know what's going to happen to the rest of the harvest, you see? And so the tendency then is when you plant a field and you harvest a crop, God says, I want you to bring the very first thing that it produces to me. But the tendency is for a farmer when he harvests his field is to take it all and to store it away because he doesn't know what's going to happen to the rest of it. Do you see? It may be gone. God says, I want you to bring it to me. The very first. I want you to bring to me the very best. And I want you to give that to me and run the risk that you will have absolutely nothing. Because then you live by faith. And when you live by faith, then I'm truly pleased. The rest of your harvest may be damaged, may be small, but God says, give me that first chunk because that's the best chunk. You see? See, it's that first part, the first indicator of the full crop that's coming down the road. And what he's saying is this, listen, that we are the first and the very best indicator of the complete crop that's coming later. You who believe, you're the first fruits. You're the first and the very best indicator of the crop that's coming behind us. It's important for us to understand that there's a great harvest that's coming later. doesn't look like it now, but at some point God is going to recreate absolutely everything. He's going to make a new earth. He's going to make a new heaven. And those who have been brought forth by the Word of Christ in this present age, that's you and that's me, we will have the privilege of being the first and the best piece of that harvest. Do you see? We're the first fruits. He wants us to be the first and the best sample of the harvest that's yet to come. That's what He wants from us. That's who you are. Every single one of you in this room. We're a microcosm of the great harvest that's yet to come. We who hear the Word of Christ, we who repent and come to Him in faith, we're the first look. We're the best representative 
of what the harvest is going to be like in heaven. Because if God can take you and He can turn you into something beautiful and amazing and He can resurrect you from death in your sin unto life, can you imagine what He's going to do with the rest of the harvest? If He can do that with me, what can He do with eternity? Friends, you are the first fruits right here in this room. You're the best of the harvest, the very finest, the first indicator of what the eternal crop is going to look like. He does not want to have the impurity of your sin. He does not want to have the impurity of your uncontrolled desire. He does not want to have the impurity of your lustful passions mingled in with His crop. Do you see that? He wants a pure crop. And that's why He has given us the indescribable gift of the Word of Christ so that we can receive it and be cleansed. And that's why it's a heavy burden and an awesome responsibility for us to understand the Word of Christ and to understand it properly as God intended it. Because by doing that, we can be made new, brought forth from impurity and death into life, a clean and pure, holy indicator of what the rest of His crop is going to look like. Father, I thank You so much for the kind attention of Your people. I thank You that You have been merciful to us and so good to us. I thank You, God, for the Word of Christ, the Word of the Gospel that has saved us. I thank You that You have reached down into the grave to rescue me and to breathe new life into me. And God, I pray that You would help me to become purified in my actions. I pray that You would help Root River Church to be a church that hungers for purity, that the first fruit of your harvest might be beautiful and pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to purify ourselves. I pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, empower us to walk away from the push of our epithumia, of our desires and our passions that want to drive us into the trap of death. Allow us, God, to be a pure harvest, a pure bride for you, we pray in Jesus' name.